The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aaronsmeely, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Mental health lives across a large spectrum of feelings, emotions, clinical disorders, and more. And aside from diagnosable mental health conditions, we know that workers in the U.S. and elsewhere are feeling an increasing sense of anxiety, stress, and dread. A recent survey from Headspace actually found 89% of employees had felt moderate to extreme stress in the last year, while 59% of CEOs said they've felt a sense of dread at work at least once a week. We'll talk about these stats and more today with Russell Glass, CEO of Headspace, the meditation and wellness app that is now working with companies on larger issues about workplace mental health. Russ will share his own struggle with ambition, achievement, imposter syndrome, and yes, powerful CEOs really do talk about this stuff with each other, and why he wanted to join Headspace. And we'll start by talking about Russ's own experience with meditation. I want to bring listeners to a specific moment, if you can remember it. And that is the first time that you tried meditating. Do you remember how you felt? The first time I tried meditating, I really didn't understand it, to be honest. <laughs> I it happened to be in the Headspace app and I listened to Andy's voice and it felt to me like it was a little woo-woo. <laughs> you know, it felt to me like it was a little a little out there based on my experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I brought some, you know, preconceived bias to it, but I went through it. It was about a 10 minute experience and I finished and I said, oh, now I know what meditation is, but I didn't feel any different. Maybe I felt a little tired, but it wasn't the, you know, game changing experience that I expected going into it. (laughs) Did you stick with it? I did. And I'll take a step back in a few minutes on why I started meditating, but I stuck with it because I had heard so many good things about it and I knew I could get value from having more mindfulness. I knew I could get value from being able to develop a practice. And so I was motivated to stick with it. And it took about three weeks for me to realize the the power of it. And it was actually surprising, you know, again, going in, I expected that I would you meditate and, and just feel, you know, I feel like the Buddha, right? Like feel, feel different all of a sudden. And three weeks into the practice, uh, 10 minutes a day, I was actually in a meeting and I remember like literally, I remember I was sitting, I remember there were 
four or five people in the meeting. And there was something that somebody said in the meeting that I knew would have triggered my stress response, would have triggered an mm-hmm. anxiety response. And instead, I remember sort of sitting there and, and thinking to myself, oh, that's interesting. I can feel how I should be anxious right now. I can feel how this anxiety response would start, but I just noted it and let it go and immediately thought this clicked, this, this really, this is what meditation is. This is what mindfulness is, right? It is the ability to just notice and, you know, validate these are real emotions. These are real feelings. This is the human experience, but it doesn't mean I have to respond to it, right? In, in the sort of traditional way, it doesn't have to be a fear response. And so I noticed it. I let it go. And, you know, without exaggeration, I have been a different person since that moment in terms of my ability to bring mindfulness to literally everything I do. Before you discovered mindfulness, how might you have typically reacted in a meeting or in the workday when you got triggered, when you had that anxiety response? Did you have any sort of greatest hits? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, (laughs) for me, and I think everybody is different, you know, in, in how anxiety shows up. For me, it was a tightening of the chest. Mm-hmm. It was faster breathing. It was a sort of a tunnel focus, you know, like I had trouble processing and thinking clearly. I would sort of get stuck in this response I was having. And my natural sort of stress shape is to try to react and solve as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And so I'd quickly go into solve mode. Often, you know, later on, I'd look back and sort of regret, you know, the decision I made in that moment uh, <laughs> is like, that was, that was obviously not the right decision. And, and so often I would have to undo those decisions. And, you know, this all came from, I really spent most of my, you know, early years and even through college without anxiety and, or very, you know, modest levels. And this all really started for me when I sold my company to LinkedIn. Tell us about that. I have been an entrepreneur since I can remember, you know, since 13 years old. And I've always felt, you know, this sort of magic of the power of entrepreneurialism, like the ability to solve problems by building companies. And it's always been interesting to me, probably because my dad was an entrepreneur also. But I had built companies, both successful ones and, and not successful ones. And I'd done that all, I wouldn't say with perfect mental health by any stretch, but I didn't have this feeling of sort of, you know, real anxiety until I sold my company to LinkedIn. At about the same time, I had my third baby, like literally like (laughs) baby and sold the company within a week and started at LinkedIn. And for the first time in my life, felt almost a little bit of panic, certainly imposter syndrome. And I just didn't trust my gut, just didn't feel like I belonged. Even though you had achieved the dream, you had sold a company to a really big company. You're supposed to feel great. You're supposed to feel like king of the world. I know. Well, isn't that isn't that funny about mental health? Like so much of so much of it <laughs> is how you're supposed to feel. Totally. And your own experience and not feeling how you're supposed to feel, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And um, then feeling bad about that. And then feeling bad about that, right? It's it it you get in these cycles. So first of all, I would say I wasn't sleeping very well, right? So let's start there. Like I had a new infant in the house, and I think that was part of this. Hmm. When I don't sleep, I have trouble coping in general. So sleep is a critical part of you know my success as a leader. But two was that I actually felt quite a bit of pressure for this to be successful for all of our employees who got acquired by LinkedIn. Mm. There was a feeling of, are they getting what they need? Because I don't control that anymore. Right. Right. And are they going to be successful? And is the new company going to feel like they're good enough? Right. Is the new company going to feel like I'm good enough for what I'm doing here? And the truth was a few weeks in, I had a this just incredible sense of, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And of course, that's natural. It's a, it's like starting a brand new job. You don't know what you're doing for a while at a brand new job, but yeah, it was kind of like I had two jobs, right? I had the old job because they acquired this company and I was responsible for all these people in the transition. But then I had the new job too and, and trying to figure out how to operate in a company that's, you know, 10x bigger than the company that I was running and more actually huh. 20x bigger. And that I think led to this imposter syndrome and this just like loss of trust in my gut, you know, loss of belief in, you know, myself as a leader, as an entrepreneur. And and interestingly, that's when, you know, Jeff Wiener, the then CEO of LinkedIn, an incredible believer in mindfulness early, this was back in 2014. So kind of early in this understanding brought Andy Pudicum, the, the founder of Headspace to LinkedIn to talk to the company. Huh. Did you ever talk to Jeff about your own feelings in retrospect and how meditation had helped? I did. Yeah. On the meditation front, I didn't get in, I think, to my feelings of imposter syndrome with Jeff for quite a while. Hmm. But I did, you know, both let him know how important meditation had become to me. And I also one of the big transitions for me, not only finding mindfulness was being able to, you know, say to Jeff, Hey, and I was running product management. I I'm obviously new here, but I think there are some things that are broken about how product management is working here and how, how I think we should improve it. And, you know, he, he's an incredible leader and listened and right away empowered me to fix some of these things. And that was, you know, both the mindfulness and then and then feeling empowered to f- fix some things that I thought might be broken but didn't totally trust I knew what I was talking about uh-huh. led to an amazing, you know, three years at LinkedIn. It turned my entire experience around there. I'm curious about, you know, if at any point you did tell him that you felt imposter syndrome coming in and what his response was. You know, it's so interesting for me when powerful people admit that they feel imposter syndrome. And if they share it with other powerful people, are they like, yeah, of course, you know, or is it like, what? You felt what? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure if I had the words for it. Yeah. You know, back then, I'm not sure if I even knew what imposter syndrome was. I might have, but I don't remember if I did or not. But I certainly said, hey, you know, I could be wrong here because I'm new and I've never worked at a company even close to this big before. Yeah. You know, but I think I'm seeing some things that could be improved. 
And, you know, I remember he said to me right away, he's like, well, that's why we want entrepreneurs in these roles, you know? <laughs> and that was like a revelation to me too. It was like, oh yeah. Okay. Like I'm here for a reason, <laughs> you know? Right. And that's so often the case that, you know, it happens all over the place, right? People, you know, feel this sense of imposter syndrome, the sense that they don't deserve to be where they are, but in actuality, they wouldn't be there in most cases if they didn't deserve to be there, you know? Exactly. I'm curious if you've reflected on the sort of anxiety that leaving one powerful, comfortable identity and stepping into a new one brings. You've been an entrepreneur, then you worked at a much bigger company. You're now CEO at Headspace. When you have to shift identity around your role and how you show up every day, do you find that that makes you anxious ever? Yeah, it's actually, it's a great question. I mean, to be honest, because I have developed the ability to be mindful about these things, I think that I'm able to handle these shifts with a little more grace than maybe I used to be able to. Yeah. I, I'll give you an example. When, when I joined Ginger, which was, you know, the company that we recently merged with Headspace, it was a company that was entirely focused on delivering digital mental health care. It was a healthcare company. It's the first time I've ever been involved in a healthcare company. I was just blown away by the way the company was thinking about how we solve this, this huge supply demand imbalance problem that exists in mental health. So many more people, you know, a billion people around the world that have a diagnosis and only 40% of them are getting any kind of support. So the vast majority of people are not getting care that they need in mental health. And Ginger's entire mission was to solve that supply demand imbalance. And when I joined the company, obviously I was brand new to healthcare. And, and so I had to have some modesty from the start because I had a lot to learn. And I felt like my naivete, my modesty was actually an asset, you know, coming in and looking at the problem fresh. And, and eventually I'd learn, you know, learn enough to be dangerous in healthcare. <laughs> One of the things that I've looked back on and I've changed over time is that I didn't start by describing some of my own mental health challenges. And what was interesting about it is my perception was that if I came in and, and started talking about my own mental health challenges, I might be diminishing or belittling others who have had serious mental health challenges. You know, hmm. I felt almost like I didn't want to become the focus. Right. And take away from people who have had serious issues. I don't agree with that, but okay. I, I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> okay. I don't either. It was, it was, it was wrong minded. I've since changed my approach there to talk often about the challenges I faced. And what I realized was, and we talk to other companies about this all the time now as a platform that's helping other organizations support their people and, and their employees. We talk all the time about how important it is that people in leadership roles do talk about their struggles and, and do, yeah. you know, give voice to this because it normalizes it, right? And it allows others to do it as well. But at the time, I was very anxious about that, you know, not wanting to feel like a poser in this world, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, so to speak. And that was, you know, that, that was a learning for me that everybody has their own journey. 
just because mine isn't as serious as someone else's or, or mine is more serious than another person's, it doesn't make it any less real. Mm-mm. And my ability to transparently talk about it helps immensely others who may not be in the same positions I'm in to feel like they can talk about it as well and they can reach out for support as well. A hundred percent. And I actually want to reflect back on what I thought was really powerful about how you did share very openly how meditation has helped you manage those sort of anxious reactions. I think when leaders do something like that, where they totally normalize that we all have anxious reactions because work and life make us anxious because we're human. And we have tools to be able to sort of modulate those reactions into more thoughtful responses. That's so powerful. Also, because it, you know, meditation can feel like such a lofty concept that feels scary and tedious. And by giving it a practical application, people can be like, oh, wow, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to not be impulsive, you know, in a meeting or regret what I do or say. Yes. Totally. I think I think that's powerful. There's no doubt. Well, and for me, there's the work element. But I would say just as powerful, if not more powerful, has been how I show up at, at home, how I show up with my family, mm-hmm. how I show up with my children. You know, my my marriage, my wife actually is also an active meditator. And I would say meditation has been the single largest positive impact on our marriage that there's been. Wow. And, you know, we're now, what, 2007. So we're, 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 we've been married 16 years. And, and, and I should probably know that right on the top of my head, but I don't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, our ability to be mindful about the feelings you go through day in and day out as a, as a married couple. Um, yep. you know, I have a, I have a 14, a 12 and a nine year old. Me too. I have an eight-year-old, 14, 12, and eight. Oh, amazing. Well, yeah. so, so you know, mine are all girls. And oh. it is a, it's a roller coaster, right? Of change and amazement and love and, you know, frustration and pain and all of it, right? <laughs> all of it. But Drama. But, that's right. Exactly. But, but being able to, to show up mindfully really modulates that. It creates a little more of a calm <laughs> environment <laughs> to take all of these changes and to accept everybody, you know, for kind of what they're bringing to the moment. And my wife and I, you know, both feel the same way about our relationship that we're much more able to, you know, manage some of the things that are difficult about marriage. I have to say that for me, the single biggest help that being more mindful has brought to me is, you know, being able to stop and think before I speak, yeah, which yeah. is important in business and parenting, but especially in marriage. <laughs> Whereas before I might, you know, I'm a blurter. I can be impulsive when I'm anxious and I blurt. And that could be very damaging. And just the ability to pause for a beat and say, do I really want to say this? Yeah, a breath. You know, or even more, what are the consequences? And why do I want to say this? And that all of 10 seconds that'll take, but it's so powerful. Yeah, uh, 100%. And, and there's a lot of science behind it. You know, the ability to move from, you know, the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system, right? The, this notion of, you know, in the sympathetic system, you're really in flight or fight. And that's your natural response. We've evolved to have that response. 
to certain triggers. And even a few deep breaths, you know, <laughs> even 10 seconds of breathing helps the body shift back into the parasympathetic. And, you know, a full minute or two of box breathing, as an example, will move you fully. It's like a reset button, right? It fully into the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest part of your, you know, nervous system. And there is real science behind what this does. And your point about just that moment of pause helps us, you know, react more positively. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I want to zoom out a little bit because you're CEO of a sort of tech-ish company. Yeah, I'd call it a, a health tech company, yeah. Yeah, a health tech company. You know. I am seeing as an observer and someone who works with a lot of companies that there's an ambivalence now. I think that, you know, obviously during the pandemic, it was all hands on deck. Let's just help people get through this, right? It was a crisis. And right now we're in this moment where the economy is shaky. There's a lot of layoffs. Nobody knows what's going to happen with interest rates or the markets. And we have some pretty big figures like Elon Musk and Jamie Dimon and coming in and being like, I just want people to show up. I'm not here to coddle you. And, you know, I'm not here to give you perks like this is work, show up. And I think that there's a downstream effect of that. I think that companies are feeling ambivalent about maybe, oh, we overinvested in mental health and DEI and all these nice things that work. And now we've got people who we don't feel are as committed and we really just want them to come back to the office. So let's do this. I'm curious in your role as a CEO, who obviously has to have a workforce that shows up and does great work, but is in the wellness space, what you make of the moment we're in and what you would tell a CEO who's really frustrated right now that people are, I hear this all the time, using anxiety as an excuse to not come back to the office. Yeah. It's a great it's a great question. I think we are at a it's almost like we're in many moments of transition at the same time, right? Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. You know, the 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 pandemic changed so many things about how we operate. It accelerated some things, it set some other things back. And I think there's an argument that we'll feel the effects of the pandemic for decades. Yes. You know? in terms of, you know, how society operates. And, and and work will never be the same again, I don't think. Yeah, I think, 
you know, I, I have trouble with never just because it's a long time. Uh, <laughs> okay. Fair but, enough. But I think for a long time, I think, I think that's safe to say. And, you know, I have a few thoughts on this. One is I'm not somebody who fully subscribes to the fully remote environment, mm-hmm. which I think surprises some people because we're such a, a company that's so focused on, you know, mental health and employee culture and whatnot. But, but the truth is that first of all, there is real loneliness that we see occurring when employees are always remote. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, for thousands of years, we have met our best friends at work. You know, like since we started farming together, <laughs> we have been meeting our friends and building social ties and connections at work. So I do think, and we see it particularly in the younger populations that maybe haven't built a family structure yet or haven't developed some of those quote unquote roots that they've planted. We see real loneliness. And I think a non-trivial part of that is coming from some of these remote work environments. Two is I do think there is a long-term sort of a longitudinal price to pay for people who never have in-office experiences. Yeah. You know, we see it in some data that show that people who are remote are less likely to get promoted than those who are coming into an office. I certainly look, you know, anecdotally, like at my career and, and all of the moments throughout my career that wouldn't have happened had I been remote for my whole career. And so... I worry about, you know, you know, young adults coming out from university today and never having had experiences in an office, never having had, you know, some of those tighter connections and just the like random chance events that happen when you're in an office environment. Headspace did a survey about stress and mental well-being and dread. Yeah. And the headline was that dread is infiltrating the workforce. Employees, unsurprisingly, 89% of employees say they felt moderate to extreme stress. And 49% say they feel a sense of dread once a week. And that's mostly about unpredictability at work and being overwhelmed by expectations. 59% of CEOs feel dread. And 45% of HR leaders, I find that number way too low. I don't believe it, um, (laughs) feel a sense of dread. Dread is the worst. It's a big word, and it's the worst feeling. Do you think that remote work has an effect on dread? I do. And again, I want to make sure that we balance this. Because I think that, you know, for all the reasons I just stated, but I also think that as you talk about this, you know, the, the the results of this survey we did, you're seeing pretty scary numbers. You know, 45% saying they feel a sense of dread at least once a week is a big number. Again, I think that some of this comes from not knowing colleagues well enough, mm-hmm. not being able to 
you know, pick up the phone and talk through some stuff, not being sitting able to by yourself yeah. and being lonely. I, I find, I mean, I'm a big dread person and I have learned that the only way for me to get rid of dread is either to dive into the work or to be with people. Be with people. That's right. And we see it again and again. Every time we bring people together, the response is so glowingly positive. They're thirsting for that human interaction. And so what I would say to CEOs is, look, there are huge advantages to getting people together. And everybody's business is different, right? Some businesses mm -hmm. you literally cannot do without people in person. Surgery is the example, right? I mean, there's just something you have <laughs> to be big in, one, yes. in person for, right? <laughs> and then some you can do remote, but you have to be thoughtful about it. And the confounding factor of all of this is that most people want flexibility today. Most people you know, are saying, hey, I'm not going to consider a job that I don't have, you know, remote flexibility. So that's the balance that, you know, I think everybody as leaders have to strike. It's one of the reasons I think being a CEO today is extremely difficult because you're having to weigh these factors that are both positive and negative on people's performance and mental health and sort of longitudinal value for their careers with the short-term needs that they you know, are describing and have, and then the long-term needs of the business. It's very complicated. I uh, <laughs> I think I've mentioned this before, but I was at a roundtable of executives in London recently, and they were they were talking, and this was UK, but they were talking about how they do feel that people use mental health as an excuse to not come into the office when they're meant to, or to not start at times they want them to. And one of the gentlemen said, well, it's nothing a good recession won't fix, which I thought was an extremely cynical comment. But <laughs> I'm sure you hear conversations like this among CEO friends. Your whole purpose at Headspace is to create mentally healthy workplaces. What's your response when people say, Ech, I'm sick of people using mental health as an excuse or we don't really need that? Yeah. What I would say is those leaders obviously haven't had a suicide at their workplace. Mm. They obviously haven't had a, you know, a teenager of one of their employees end up harming themselves. I mean, the, the truth is that every day we see the intense effects of mental health right now on the population and to think that somebody, you know, is, is pretending that they have mental health issues, a quite a stigmatized thing still to this day. Yeah. Because they don't want to show up at the office, you know, at a certain time. I, I just think it's that, that those leaders aren't, aren't really thinking hard about what people need today. My experience here is that the more that people either have interacted with others that have mental health needs or need support, the more that they've had some themselves, the more empathetic and compassionate they are. And so, you know, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I think it's an excuse, generally speaking, for either, you know, poor performance or poor management. <laughs> Make me the business case for meditation. Well, you know, we see today that any kind of mental health support. You know, there's actually a study done by Cigna recently. Any kind of mental health support leads to a thousand dollars of savings in overall healthcare spend in the first year 
and three thousand dollars of savings over two years. So that's that's one study. We've seen direct healthcare savings. This is just healthcare savings. This is, doesn't include productivity gains and absenteeism and right, you know, whatnot. We've seen direct thirty percent healthcare savings, overall cost of healthcare from investing in mental health support. So these kinds of ROI numbers that we continue to see, the NIH has done studies, you know, you'll see anywhere between a two and a four X return on dollar spent on mental health support. I don't think there's any doubt at this point that this should be looked at as an investment, not a cost, right? You're investing in a return. And that's just on the economic side of it. Then as you think about the individual that is more performant, they're feeling better, they're less likely to be absent, you know, back to the the comment that was made to you, you know, somebody who's really engaged in an organization, mm-hmm. even if you believe they're pretending to have mental health <laughs> issues, right? Somebody who's really engaged, are they going to pretend? Totally. <laughs> right? So, you know, it's almost like a tautology there, yeah. right? Where... If you're supporting people and they're engaged and they're not burned out, they're not going to feel they have these needs and, and they're going to be performant. And so the combination of all of these to me is it becomes just clear as, as can be that investing in these things has an incredible upside for organizations as well as individuals. Last question. You've been a lifelong entrepreneur. What can we do better? to help the next generation of entrepreneurs who are going to become CEOs and leaders or just people who are going to become the next generation of CEOs, what can we do better to help them integrate mental health from day one so it doesn't ever have to become this discussion of either or or it's a benefit I can cut because I don't feel it's that important or I'm not going to talk about my own experiences. What does the next generation need to know? Yeah, it's a good question. I kind of think of this in three different levels, right? So the first level is culture change. You know, the conversation we're having right here, hopefully there's an entrepreneur that listens to it and feels better about having these conversations and feels better about incorporating this into how they show up on a day-to-day basis. And we talk a lot about and actually provide resources for schools so that schools can build some mental health awareness and meditation, mindfulness training into curriculum. Mm -hmm. Because if our kids can access these tools earlier and throughout the changes they go through as adolescents and, and into adulthood, we're going to see a population that's much more mentally fit over time because, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we teach kids physical education. We require them to have a certain amount of gym time, right? In order to graduate. Why don't we do the same with mental health? And why don't we do the same with mindfulness and meditation? I think it would be incredibly beneficial. I think the final piece then is, you know, uh, helping those entrepreneurs understand that return on investment that I just spoke of that. This isn't something you should look at as a a benefit that's going to cost you money. Mm-hmm. It's something you should look at as an investment in a company that's going to perform and a 
team that's going to perform. And so just flipping that mindset, I think, is an important part of this. Well, Russ, thank you so much. Thank you, Maura. Great to talk to you again. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.